Hello everyone and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. I wish America remains the symbol of freedom and uh, the country which set up the standards of democracy in the world. The beloved Ukrainian novelist Andrei Kurpov shows me the quiet acts of resistance here in war-torn Kyiv and sends a message to America. I'll put this to the US Under Secretary of State Victoria Nuland. Then, the death of Alexei Navalny shakes Russia. Where does Putin stand now? From Moscow, former MP and Putin ally Sergei Markov joins me. And how policymakers should handle a fragmented world. The IMF's Gita Gopinath on the state of the global economy. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Manpour in Kyiv. As the war here approaches two years, Russia claims to have captured a key village in the Kherson region. But Ukrainian officials say their forces continue to hold their positions. Russia has made gains in Donetsk, though, while Ukraine says it hit a training ground for Russian troops near the Dnipro River. And while ordinary Ukrainian civilians follow these military developments closely, they are mounting their own resistance by simply carrying on, refusing to be cowed. Just buying books and reading them is an act of resistance here these days, as we discovered in Kyiv. This bookstore is called Sens, or The Meaning, and opening in Kyiv just days before the Russian war enters a third year sends a clear message. And Ukraine's greatest living novelist Andrei Kurkov tells us there is much to say about Ukraine's culture, identity and resistance. He wrote the foreword for this tome full of 12th century artifacts. So when Putin says this is all greater Russia, what's your answer? Well, uh, he's silly uh, <laughs> and he's not historian. Kyiv is 1,540 years old. Moscow is only 870 years old. An army of workers is still getting the bookstore cafe ready. But it is open and people come in hungry for non-fiction these days, for the history of their region. Ukrainian identity helps them fight and resist, says Kurkov, reminding us that Russians have looted and destroyed libraries, theaters and museums in parts they now occupy. And what would you be saying, if you were to say anything, to the people of Russia? Oh, it's a very good, uh, good question. I, I would uh, probably ask them to, uh, to put mirrors all around them and to look uh, themselves in the eyes and to ask themselves a question if they are living in 21st century or they are still living in Stalin's gulag. Kurkov, like most Ukrainians, see themselves, their land, as the front line between the authoritarian and the democratic worlds. Kyiv is further away from the fighting, but over in the northeast, Kharkiv, the second largest city, the danger is real and ever-present. Some 40 miles from the Russia border, their massive S-300 missiles reach the city in less than 40 seconds, no time to hide. Memorials to the recent dead spring up all over. This is a place where material evidence of war crimes committed by the Russian Federation is stored. 
including multiple launch rocket systems, grads, cruise missiles, Shahid drones, artillery shells. This Kharkiv radio station is called Boiling Over. It started up 10 years ago after Russia's first invasion as an alternate voice. Just a month and a half ago, you could listen to dozens of Russian stations, says the founder Yevhen. All of these are Russian propaganda stations that tell us that Ukraine doesn't exist, that it's in Russia, and that Ukrainian soldiers should surrender. Natalia, the radio host, tells us it's also become a sounding board for the terrified and depressed Kharkiv listeners. Feedback can be varied, she tells us. Sometimes they just thank me for the show and for the fact that they got out of bed thanks to the program. And I consider this a victory because it could be someone in a state of absolute despair. Like Ukrainians everywhere, the novelist Kirchhoff tells me he is hoping for America to step up now. And uh, remember that America was always a symbol of freedom for, for Ukraine, for many countries. And I wish America remains the symbol of freedom and uh, the country which set up the standards of democracy in the world. Kyiv and Kharkiv, a tale of two cities and separate states of anxiety. You heard Andre Kirchhoff there with his message to America, a sentiment echoed by so many people here as they await that vital aid package currently stalled in Congress. And the White House used a memo to slam Republican congressional leaders for not cancelling recess to pass the aid. Victoria Newland is the Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs and she knows Ukraine very well, most recently visiting for talks last month and she's joining me now from Washington. Welcome to the program, Victoria Newland. Thank you, Christian. Good to be Good with you again. Yes, you too. And I just wonder, you probably heard what Andrei Kirchhoff, you probably know him, said uh, that he would say to the Americans if he could. Uh, what's your response to him and others here telling us, you know, America talks a good game, but right now we're stalled and it needs to remember it is the father, mother of, of democracy and freedom around the world. Well, thank you, Christian. That's the point that President Biden is making as well, and that 70 senators made just last week in passing overwhelmingly the administration's supplemental request, including $60 billion for Ukraine. So now the question is in the House of Representatives, and support for Ukraine across the United States is still strong. So we hope that representatives will reflect that in the way they vote. And it's strong not just because people understand uh, how brave and resilient Ukraine has been, but that this is not just about Ukraine. If we don't stop Putin in Ukraine, he will keep going. And autocrats and tyrants all around the world will take comfort and think that they too can chunk off a piece of their neighbor. So this is absolutely essential. Uh, it is, and I do hear you and the others in the administration and supporters talking about the vital necessity to do this. But as people say, hope is not a strategy. And do you have any actual belief or reason to believe that eventually uh, this bill will be paid? And if not, how are you going to make sure Ukraine gets vital weapons and ammunition? 
Christian, I have strong confidence that when the House comes back, after they've been out in their districts hearing from the American people, after they have heard from Ukraine, they have heard from Europe, which, by the way, just passed $54 billion in additional aid itself, that we will do what we have always done, which is defend democracy and freedom around the world, not just for victims of uh, tyrants like Putin, but in our own interest in preserving a free and open international order. That's what we need to do. We've done it before. And by the way, we have to remember that the bulk of this money is going right back into the U.S. economy to make those weapons, including good-paying jobs in some 40 states across the United States. Uh, equally, the lack of that money and most importantly the materiel for the frontline fighters is being felt on the front right now. And I've, in the last few days that I've been here, have heard nothing but tales of how lives are being lost, land is being lost. Uh, it's really, really urgent. What, what is your U.S. government assessment of the dangers for Ukraine on the front line right now? Well, you are absolutely right, Christian. Uh, when I was there some three weeks ago, uh, the Ukrainian military was reporting that in some parts of that front line that they've been holding World War I-style trench warfare for two years now, some of the soldiers have only 20 shells to survive the day. Uh, so this supplemental not only gets them money, uh, gets them ammunition now, it also helps them to begin producing their own ammunition and to have a stronger opportunity going forward and to build a highly resilient force of the future. You are in Kharkiv. Uh, in Kharkiv, as you probably noticed, Putin's trying something different. He is bombarding one of uh, Ukraine's most beautiful eastern cities from the air every day trying to flatten it. And by the way, it's a Russian-speaking city that he is bombing. Remember, he said that he was going in in the first place back in 15 uh, to protect Russian-speaking Ukrainians, and now he is bombing them. And that's another way uh, that without more air defense, etc., cetera, uh, he can uh, do his bidding with you in Ukraine. And you could feel it in the uh, desperate voices of those you interviewed. Indeed, indeed. And I was, as, 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 as maybe you were too, but certainly American officials from the administration, uh, at the Munich Security Conference. Um, but first, what I want to do is to play what former Congresswoman Liz Cheney has said about this affair, this situation, and how the MAGA wing of the Republican Party is really essentially shaping not just the debate, but in this case, the front lines and the battles. And then I'll ask you another question about it. We have to take seriously the extent to which, um, you know, you've now got a Putin wing of the Republican Party. Uh, I believe the issue this election cycle is making sure the Putin wing of the Republican Party does not take over the West Wing of the White House. And, and we heard uh, from the foreign minister here, Dmitry Kuleba, that if they had received the the you know the weapons the shells the ammunition the money that Trump has prevented uh, the you know the House Speaker from bringing to the floor, I'd, they say Avdivka would not have fallen. So 
I'm just wondering, again, what is the way around that? And, and do you think, because we listened in, uh, you know, in Munich to a lot of the Republican senators who, who were there, who just seemed not to want to know. I mean, they kind of trolled Europe, they kind of insulted Ukraine, and they almost said, and maybe they did say, that it's time to negotiate with Putin. So, first of all, as you know, Christian, at the State Department, we don't do domestic politics, but I will say on a personal level that I couldn't have said it better uh, than uh, Congresswoman Cheney said it. I think the issue now, as the House of Representatives comes back in the middle of next week, is do they want to do Putin's bidding or do they want to f defend freedom and democracy, not just in Ukraine, but around the world, as America has always done, and in our own interest. And that's the question they have to dig deep and ask themselves. And they have to take responsibility mm -hmm. for the decision they make and the future they give our children. So Ukraine obviously is dependent on this aid and it's been doing very well with the aid, you know, in the last two years. It's been holding off a much more powerful, better armed, you know, many, many more people that they can send to their front uh, and it's been doing it. But now as we see, they are losing some territory and really the fight is, is absolutely desperate. They also have no hope at all yet of getting into NATO, but there was also another announcement in the EU that they're invitation for accession procedure will be delayed. I mean, that's just a lot to throw at a country that's fighting for its survival right now. Why do you think the EU has put that on the back burner? Well, I think what the EU was talking about was that without more economic support, without more technical support, Ukraine can't make the reforms that it needs to make in its custom system, in the way its economy works, in its judicial system, to be eligible to become an EU member. So everything gets delayed when aid is delayed. Um, but as you said, it is a grinding battle on the front lines. This supplemental funding that we are asking Congress for will also help Ukraine to fight and enhance its asymmetric uh, military capability because fighting like World War I trench battle is not going to get them where they need to go. It will also help strengthen their economy. The more air defense you can bring in, the air defense provides bubbles under which the economy can grow, the tax base can grow, people feel safe coming home. So all of this is about the fight today, but it's also about putting Ukraine on a more sustainable footing where it can meet those EU benchmarks, where it can begin to uh, produce its own weapons and build a highly deterrent force of the future and tell Putin no when he thinks he can wait Ukraine out or wait us out. So, you know, You've all tried to sort of put Putin on the back foot, all the sanctions, the, the unity of NATO, which he didn't expect. But we had Yevgenia Albats, a very distinguished and self-exiled Russian journalist, who told the program last night that, you know, Putin feels looking at what's going on in your politics. I know you don't like to talk about politics, but they're watching Putin, Xi, everybody, Iran, feels that the West is weak and is fulfilling what he predicted that the West would get tired of this. As long as he just stick, stayed at it, the West would get tired. I even he, he written that he thought that the Tucker Carlson conversation uh, brought him back into the international sort of spotlight and rubbed uh, a little of the pariah status away. 
And they are doing well in their economy because they've turned it into a domestic defense economy. So now, how, how do you assess the strength of this adversary? Uh, well, first of all, it depends what kind of country you want to build, right? If you want to build a country where a thousand of your young men a day are sent across the front lines to be put into a meat grinder and you want to tell their mothers what happened to them, um, then you can have Putin's Russia. If you want to have a situation where you're about to have an election in less than a month, which is frankly no more than a selection because you've killed off uh, or um, Im imprisoned or silenced any serious opponent, that's Putin's Russia. If you want to deny uh, the next generation the technology, the education, the investment in their future that young Russians want, um, then that's Putin's Russia. So you're right, Christian. He's turned the entire country into a bloody war machine. And by the way, deepened its dependence on neighbors like China, deepened its dependence on pariah states like Iran and North Korea. Uh, I, I sympathize with Zhenya Albats because that is not the Russia that she wanted. It's not the Russia um, that, frankly, we wanted. We wanted a partner that was going to be westernizing, that was going to be European, uh, but that's not what Putin has done. And as desperate and awful a situation this is for Ukraine, uh, Putin's also destroyed his own country through all of this. And we will continue to tighten the noose on him and force his choices uh, to be to come to the table in a serious way or uh, live with the Russia that he's wrought, which is not the Russia he promised his people. But very briefly and finally, is this the Russia that you fear could win here in Ukraine? Again, Ukraine, the, the Europeans just passed $54 billion in new assistance for Ukraine. Seventy U.S. senators agree that we should pass this supplemental request and help Ukraine now, help it turn the corner in 2024. Now all eyes are on the House of Representatives. Uh, I have confidence in the American people's support for freedom and democracy, not just in Ukraine, but around the world and their senators and their uh, senators have already listened to them. It's time for the members of the House of Representatives to also hear uh, that call for America to step up and do what's right if we want to live in a free and open international order going forward and not be the victims of tyrants like Putin ourselves because he will keep coming. Under Secretary of State Victoria Newland, thank you for joining us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. And next, we do go to Putin's Russia. Yulia Navalnaya today reiterated her belief that the president killed her husband, Alexei, urging the media not to be diverted by Kremlin narratives. News today also that Navalny's mother has now seen her son's body. Yesterday evening, they secretly took me to the morgue, where they showed me Alexei. The investigators claim that they know the cause of the death, that they have all the medical and legal documents ready, which I saw, and I signed the medical death certificate. The death of Russia's most prominent opposition leader has shaken supporters. An independent human rights monitor in Russia reports that some of those detained at vigils for Navalny in St. Petersburg have now received military draft summons to fight here in Ukraine. So let's bring in the former Russian MP Sergei Markov. He is from Putin's political party and he is joining me now from Moscow. Sergei Markov, welcome to the program. Um, there's just so much to ask you, but first I want to ask you about uh, about the the death of Alexei Navalny and how how the West how you think the world is going to react to it, and are you surprised by the way the world has reacted to it? No, absolutely no surprise. Most of the uh, world uh, reacted. Uh, just uh, neutrally understanding that it uh, could uh, happen. And uh, Western leaders uh, try to use the death of any uh, political opponent to Vladimir Putin uh, for the uh, denying of the legitimacy of the uh, new election of uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, Western leaders uh, want uh, 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 political isolation of Vladimir Putin, and they want to use the death and election for those purposes. They want to call, okay, before this, Vladimir Putin was, uh, you know, uh, by law uh, president, uh, bad president, of course, very much, uh, or criminal, criminal, and so on, but nevertheless, legal president. But now, oh, he already will be not legal because uh, he killed uh, Alexei Navalny. It's a plan uh, absolutely uh, clear for uh, everybody. As to Alexei Navalny, uh, that's, you know, I uh, knew him, uh, I knew him uh, personally. I met him uh, many, many times and I discussed with him. He was very bright. He was very well educated, very uh, modern style uh, politician. And he had uh, good political perspectives. Uh, but they political his political process finished uh not now but 10 years ago when Alexei Navalny did not recognize Crimean people rejoining with Russia you know this decision of Crimean people have been supported by more than 90 percent of Russian population and in the moment when Alexei Navalny denied to uh, support uh, Crimea he uh, killed himself as a political leader 
Uh, okay. Then he became All right. pretty, let, quite let me just, marginalized. I, I, un I, I understand that, that in your system, he alienated himself because he didn't accept what the rest of the world believes is an illegal annexation. I mean, let's just put that out there. But I do actually want to ask you whether you think it's fair and right, or is it just revenge, that some of his supporters who've just gone to lay flowers at a memorial have been given draft notices essentially to come here and be killed. I mean, what does that sound like? I think uh, this is a situation uh, happened when the country in the war. Uh, you know, we regard ourselves that we're in the war with huge coalition of the more than 50 countries led by United States Britain and European Union. It's the biggest coalition in the world, in the in the human history, and they attacking us. Your coalition who are making aggression against Russia bigger than coalition of Napoleon Bonaparte and coalition of Adolf Hitler. Mm -hmm. And we are in resistance. That's why uh, Russian public opinion regard those who uh, claim themselves as, as Friendly to United States of America, mm -hmm. they regard themselves as uh, enemy of Russia, and that's why uh, such uh, uh, behavior. It's not behavior in the normal okay. situation. Uh, it's behavior in the situation um, of the country in the world. Um, uh, uh, Sergey Markov, let me just uh, ask you. I mean, again, you know, you've said it from your perspective, but most people in the world, including at the UN know that it was an illegal invasion by Russia and actually it's Ukraine that's resisting. So my question to you would be, and I would put it to President Putin too if I could, why would you want to send so many of your own people to be slaughtered on the battlefield here? Just for inches of territory that's creating a bloodbath that we have not seen the likes of since World War One In Avdivka, we understand that it was one Ukrainian death for seven Russian deaths. Why is this good for Russia? Uh, first of all, according to our information, the number of deaths in proportion one Russian to soldiers to two or three Ukrainian soldiers. But the tragedy is that uh, every dead Ukrainian soldiers, uh, they are Russians. For us, it's civil war. For us, it's our people. For us, Ukrainian uh, citizens, it's those uh, citizens who should be part of the Russian for us and for her history in the every history uh, textbook, the Ukraine is part of the Russia during 1000, except Polish occupation, German occupation and American occupation uh, of Ukraine um, uh, right now. And the reason why Vladimir Putin started uh, the war, it was uh, our prediction that this war will happen anyway uh, with ag and will start with, with aggression of American proxy army, which is Ukrainian army, against Donbass. It's planned exactly um, to the uh, 2023. 20, uh, and the idea of uh, those plan was to crash, uh, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin as leader and to have uh, intensive uh, political repression against pro-Russian people in Donbass uh, region, exactly yeah. as the uh, Ukrainian regime make total political repression against pro-Russian people in Kharkiv, in Odessa, in Nikolaev, 
in Zaporozhye, mm. in Kherson, in Kiravagrad, mm. and another unhumorous Ukrainian city. Vladimir Putin didn't want uh, to re uh, that Ukrainian regime will repeat same political repression on Donbass. Um, Sergei, I, I know that that's your narrative. I know that that's what Russia and you all and President Putin have been saying from the beginning. Um, but my question to you is, you've just said essentially Ukraine doesn't exist, that it's part of Russia. And I'm wondering, you know, that we, we know uh, that history shows that actually um, Ukraine, Kyiv, is double the age of Moscow itself. So it's a much older civilization than Moscow. And I just wonder whether you're not worried that when you deny the existence of a people and a nation, you're not setting yourself up for the kind of war crime talk that could be adjudicated in the future. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, interesting question. Uh, of course, uh, a cap uh, keep it's uh, a form of cap but it's our capital. Open the history textbooks. They call themselves not Ukrainians. All, uh, all uh, leaders of uh, uh, Kiev's capital, they call them then only Russians. They're Russians. It's what we uh, want to say. And uh, Ukrainian narrative, it's a neo-colonial narrative which, uh, first of all, have been exposed by Polish occupation, then used by German occupation during World War One, then used by Bolsheviks who want to uh, divide uh, uh, Russian people on the different uh, And now it's used by American occupation of uh, Ukraine. Sure. Right. But in fact, they are Russians. Yes, that's right. Capital is a capital. Keep uh, its capital. But it's our capital. It's not, uh, um, it's capital of the, our whole people. That's why we call so, this war a civil war. Well, that's what I was going to ask you next. And final question. You say that it's ours. President Putin is about to be selected as the, uh, you know, enduring Russian president, almost no opposition. What do you think then he will do in his next term? Is this war going to continue? Is there any, are you hearing anything about any kind of move in Moscow or the Kremlin to have any negotiations to end the war? Uh, he will do the same. Uh, according to sociology, uh, he will get something about, about 75%. The pro uh, but Putin has a position. He has strong opposition. It's communist opposition about yeah, yeah. his economic policy. It's nationalistic opposition about Putin's liberal migration policy. Uh, but, of course, the nation is united situation in war. Putin, for us, now as Churchill in Britain in the war against Hitler, as uh, uh, as uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, for Americans in the World War II. Uh, All right, Sergei Markov, thank you very much for joining us from Russia with your very specific point of view, which I know is the narrative in Moscow. Thank you so much for being with us. And as we've been reporting all week, Ukraine is facing some serious challenges on the front lines, increasingly outmanned and outgunned. Here's what Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba told me just days ago. Can you hold out? You say you will not fall, but, but a big town has fallen, or a medium-sized town, and they're putting pressure on the second biggest city in Ukraine right now. We wouldn't lose Avdiivka if we had received all the artillery ammunition that we needed to defend it. That is my answer to your question. Simple as that. I don't think it requires any additional comments. Yeah, Markov? Yes, I heard. Not shh, all. Shh, shh, stand by.
So let's get a reality check now on the state of this war. Oleksiy Goncharenko, and I'm going to get it wrong. Tell me how I pronounce it. There you go. Goncharenko is joining me here. MP, and uh, you're involved in many of the discussions, and you also were at the Munich Security Conference. Um, you might have heard Under Secretary of State Victoria Newland talk about the enduring commitment of the United States and hoping and expecting this extra military aid to be delivered. What is your realistic expectations? What are you hearing and feeling on the streets? I want to believe Victoria Newland because this is vital for us. United States of America told we will be with you as long as it takes. Now it's time to keep the promises. Also, I just don't want to remind you and all of us that 30 years ago, Ukraine voluntarily gave up the third biggest nuclear arsenal in the world under the guarantees of the United States of America. We would have this arsenal. Nobody, never would attack us. Mm -hmm. We did it, and uh, now we want to see these guarantees. And also, this is a basis of non-proliferation policy in the world. Because if Ukraine would fail, uh, like, what is the message to the world? If you're going to be secure, the only way, go nukes. Be prepared. So I hope that the message will be completely different, that the big countries like the United States of America, they are keeping their promises and they are standing with the countries shoulder to shoulder like they will show in Ukraine, where we are fighting not only for ourselves, but for international order. Did you have any conversations one-on-one? -on -one? I know that you asked some questions to some of the Americans, including the Republican senator at Munich, but were you able to have any one-on-one -on -one or side conversations to get a, a feel for their pulse? Yeah, I tried. Uh, uh, I'll be frank with you. It looks like American politicians are very much inside United States elections. And it bothers me because, like, I have all respect to American people. They will decide who will be your next president. But I don't understand why Ukraine should be victim of this. And that's in the best interest of all Americans, no difference for whom they will vote, that Ukraine will survive, will win this war, and United States of America will have a strong ally which Ukraine can be. Like, if there will be any war in future, and United States will need people who will stand shoulder to shoulder with them, who will be in trenches near Tehran? I don't think that many nations are ready to. Ukrainians are ready. We are Ukrainians. We are ready to stand with the United States shoulder to shoulder, either in trenches near Tehran or near uh, in North Korea or in near Beijing. No difference. Because we appreciate your support. We are strong enough. We today are the second strongest army in the free world after the United States. And I think we are a very valuable ally. But today we need your support to, to, to defend our country and to defend our common values. How would you assess the gaps in the ammunition, in the weapons, the, the delay. How would you assess it on the battlefield right now? Uh, it's quite hard and it's, it's big gaps and that's why we lost Avdivka, which we hold for 10 years. And uh, already this delay, I hope to say delay, in support from the United States, it already unfortunately makes difference on the battlefield and not in right side. Mm -hmm. So that's why we need so desperately it now. When I heard from some uh, Republican senators uh, in Munich that democracy takes time and debates need, need, uh, need time, I just said we are dying every day. That's the point, mm -hmm. every day. We don't have this time. And I think the, this is not about the time and debates, but it's about some different things. 
And uh, I don't think, again, what I want to tell you, that it's in the interest of the United States of America to help Putin, because mm -hmm. that's what's going on. The only one person who is happy from the mess, which, sorry, is happening now in U.S. Congress, is Vladimir Putin. I don't believe that American people want uh, to see this. What do you make of some of the conversation that I've been having about him, actually? You know, he's running, they say he has a, a hefty opposition, but he's expected to win uh, yeah, again. Yeah, he has a position, but all in the graves. It's very easy. Like Mr. Markov said, uh, there are opposition to Putin. Yes, they are, but just in the graves. So that's the only way. So since you brought that up, what do you think the impact of Alexei Navalny's death on Russia will be, on the people there? Do you think it'll make any material difference or Putin will just continue you know, to be the forever leader? He will continue. Unfortunately, many th people do not realize this is not the war of Vladimir Putin. This is the war of Russia and Russian people led by Vladimir Putin. Yes, there are very good people in Russia too, but they are very in small numbers. Most of people are brainwashed, are revanchistic, militaristic, and they support Putin in this. It's like in Nazi Germany. Germany became a fantastic country now. It's a great country. We appreciate it, and that's wonderful, but only after Germany came through de-imperialization. That's the thing which had not happened with Russia. And all this crazy delirium which Mr. Markov told you about Ukrainians are Russians, Kiev is Russia, you know, like Orwell, bad is uh, good, uh, white is black, and so on, it's because they are empire. And they want to continue to be empire. And by empire, there will be always a threat, not only to all neighbors around, but for the whole planet. And, and, and briefly, though, it's making a difference on the field. Avdivka has been lost. You held it for 10 years. Tell me the strategic significance of that. It's painful, but Avdivka had a population of 30,000 people. So it's not a huge city. And when Russia is so happy to take Avdivka, it's even a little bit humiliating for them, calling themselves the second strongest army in the world, and then being so happy that they took a town from 30,000 people after four months of assault. But still it's painful for us, and we're losing our people, and that is a problem. So I just want to tell you, we're not short in people. We are not short in courage. We are short in support from our allies. That is our problem today. So you're not short in people? We are not short in people. We are not short in courage of Ukrainian people. We I know not courage, short. but there's, there's and you're also outmanned by the other side. Uh, yes, they're five times bigger than us. But our army is strong, and there are another Ukrainian people who are ready to stand up and mm -hmm. go. And Ukrainians, we are standing in the lines to come back to the country, for, to fight for country. But we are short in ammunition, we are short in weaponry, and now we need to balance it with Ukrainians' lives, which is very painful, and also strategically, that's what Putin is hoping about, just to outnumber us, outweigh. I hope this will not happen with the United States support. Alexei, thank you so much indeed for thank being you. with us tonight. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts.
Now, over 30 years after the Iron Curtain came down, could the world be edging towards a new Cold War? Our next guest says that mounting tensions between the planet's most powerful nations have caused the global economy to fragment into regional competing blocks. First Managing Director at the IMF joins Walter Isaacson to discuss this turning point for the world economy. Thank you, Christian and Gita Govanath. Welcome to the show. Hi, Walter. It's a pleasure to join you. In a recent article in Foreign Policy magazine, you talk about the retreat from globalization, from this notion of free trade, that we're making a course correction and doing more onshoring. Isn't that a good idea, given the pandemic, the supply chain problems we've had, and even the Ukraine war? Walter, what we are seeing is that increasingly national security and economic security concerns are driving trade policy. And the outcome of that is a large increase in the number of restrictions that are being put on trade. So just this last year, there were 3,000 new trade restrictions that were imposed by countries. Uh, in 2019, that number was less than 1,000. So we are seeing an increase in restrictions. While we don't necessarily see a decline in globalization, which is if you look at the overall amount of global trade as a share of GDP, what we are seeing is fragmentation, which is some countries are trading more with like-minded countries uh, as opposed to others. So if you look at, for instance, the two uh, powers, the US and China, and countries uh, picking uh, partners to trade with, we've seen a uh, significant reduction in trade between the U.S. and China in terms of direct trade links between the U.S. and China. So that's a sense in which we, we are seeing increasing signs of fragmentation. Do you think this could lead to a new Cold War, at least an economic Cold War? It depends upon uh, how countries are going to manage this going forward. We are at a time when the amount of economic integration we have is much higher than it was during the Cold War. There is trade between countries is now 60% of global GDP. In 1950, that number was 16%. So the costs of going into a full-blown Cold War II would be very high compared to what it was back then. And that's why we do see attempts by countries and leaders around the world to maintain lines of communication. The US and China is are working together. They have these working groups in place. The two presidents meet uh, to, you know, again, to make sure that we don't go down a very bad slippery slope. So in that sense, I maintain some hope that we can avoid a really bad Cold War. But let's look at the bigger picture here. For about 20, 30 years, we did a whole lot more trade. There was a lot more offshoring jobs left the manufacturing jobs left the united states this led to a lot of uh, populist backlash led to a lot of problems did we overdo trade and globalization and for that matter immigration and as i think even your own boss the head of the imf said don't we need a course correction on this over hyper globalization we have to acknowledge that globalization did not make everybody winners. Now, that was actually never expected. Uh, it was always the case that when you end up with greater trade ties, you do have uh, winners, but you also do have some people who lose out. 
Now, how do you fix that? You fix that by having the right kinds of domestic policies to make sure that those who are losing jobs in the sectors that are getting, for instance, uh, sent to other countries, those jo- those workers get retrained, they get reskilled, uh, and they get uh, matched with newer industries. Well, right, let me, let, let me question you on that. Has have you ever seen any reskilling and retraining programs actually work? There have been examples where it's worked, but I will agree with you that in general, this has been much harder to make happen. But for me, the lesson is not that that means that uh, this is not the right path to go down. I think it means that countries haven't done enough and much more focus needs to be paid to it. Now, again, I I will uh, absolutely accept the fact that we've had a period of hyper-globalization where not enough attention was paid to communities that were getting negatively impacted, and also not attention enough attention was being paid to the resilience of these supply chains. And we saw that the pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine have all exposed that. And so it is right for countries to pause and you know figure out how they're going to make sure that their economies are much more protected and their people are much more protected. The only thing I would warn against is going down uh, a slippery slope where ultimately all this then becomes just about economic competition and we end up with uh, basically losing all the positive gains we've had from closer integration. One thing that President Biden and former President Trump almost agree on is that we have to do a lot more to bring manufacturing back to the United States. Is that a mistaken goal? You know, the policy Policies that help economies, and we've seen this repeatedly across countries, is are policies that improve infrastructure, that improve the, the human capital of their country, that provide apprenticeship programs, training programs. So when you put those kinds of policies in place and remove distortions in the economy, they do create uh, the right kinds of industries. And so that kind of a strategy, which is building up infrastructure, is it's a good thing. It, it helps everybody and not just the manufacturing sector. The other thing we have to keep in mind in terms of manufacturing is, again, recognizing that there's a whole lot more automation now in manufacturing than it used to be in the past. So you could actually increase the manufacturing sector in terms of size, but it would not necessarily create those many more jobs. So what would be, in your mind, the proper way to move back a bit from the era of hyper-globalization to try to protect against the supply chain shocks we've had, and for that matter, the loss of jobs in manufacturing, other than retraining, what would be the proper way to calibrate this? Well, firstly, countries need to diversify their supply chains more than they did. Uh, There was a period where the focus was exclusively on efficiency and buying from the cheapest possible source. That meant relying very heavily on one or two countries, and that exposes you to risks. So diversification is important. And we see actually companies going ahead and doing that, which is diversifying their supply chains. Secondly, it is important for countries to come together and reform the trading system that we have. Uh, Right now, the rules of the game don't deliver benefits for everybody. It is important for countries to fix it. And this is, again, uh, it is the job of countries to do. So right now, this month, there is a high-level ministerial conference that's taking place at the World Trade Organization. That is an opportunity 
to for countries to sit together and improve the trading system that we have, including fixing the dispute resolution mechanism that is broken down, addressing concerns about industrial policies, industrial subsidies being used across the world. They can do it, but you really need to uh, have the right intention. And lastly, in terms of uh, workers, you need to have stronger social uh, safety nets. Uh, and also, what we should keep in mind that an important fraction of the jobs that were lost in manufacturing did not come because of globalization. It came because of automation. So that, of course, takes us to another important area that is developing the world, which is artificial intelligence and the consequences that could have for labor markets. So, you know, many uh, actions will be required on multiple fronts. Your piece in foreign policy, I loved it because it, ha it was very historical and you even go back to right before World War I. And back then we thought, as people say now, that more trade, more global commerce will lead to greater peace. But that certainly was not the case when right before World War I, world trade was higher than it's ever been. And yet we got into a world war. What do you think it is now? Is it true that more global trade will lead to more stability? What we have seen in history is that when economies uh, are weak, uh, they are in recessions, uh, there are job losses. We saw that during the Great Depression uh, of an immense kind. That's when people want to turn away from global integration. That's when they, you know, there isn't, there's an incentive to move away from engaging with the rest of the world, including through trade. Right now, we have a global economy that has actually been more resilient than we expected it would be, uh, despite uh, the big increase in interest rates that have happened around the world and the pandemic and the, the war. Despite all of that, we have resilience. So I think we have to pause and just recognize that this integration that we have seen has helped countries remain resilient and make sure you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So you have to be uh, uh, careful about that. It, it is still very much the case that having uh, integration with the rest of the world, these trade relationships have benefited countries. They help in terms of uh, productivity. They help in terms of affordability. All of this is valuable. But at the same time, this is also the time for countries to uh, to build more resilience and not just be about efficiency, but build resilience to address both national and economic security concerns. One of the things that happened after the Ukraine invasion by Russia was a lot of economic sanctions on Russia. And we were told they could be crippling sanctions. And yet I just saw that the IMF said that the Russian economy grew at 2.4%. Why have sanctions failed so badly? So Russia's economy has indeed surprised in terms of the strength of its growth. But that said, there is one piece that uh, is clear, which is Russia's economy is now a war economy. There are There is a large amount of military expenditure. There is a large amount of social transfers that are happening. And that, as we know, always tends to will uh, raise growth. We are actually seeing signs of an overheating economy with inflation going up. So that is one important factor that has uh, held up growth in Russia. They've also been able to continue to export oil the way they've done in the past. So they're getting a large amount of export revenues from oil, which have also helped them 
in terms of uh, stabilizing the economy and growing their economy. But at the same time, we should recognize that they have lost, Russia has lost an important amount of human capital as several of the high-skilled workers have left. They have a much harder time getting access to advanced technology that affects their productive capacity. So going forward, our expectation is that this will weaken their growth in the medium term. Some people have suggested that uh, the West sees the assets of Russia, Russian banks that are held in the West and use that for Ukraine. Is that a good idea in your opinion? So Walter, you know, we have a principle of neutrality. We don't really uh, get involved in these kinds of uh, decisions about what to do with the frozen assets. We are following the developments closely. Uh, it is going to depend upon the, the relevant countries whose jurisdictions these assets are in to make uh, a decision. That said, we will, of course, evaluate the impact of any action that is taken with these assets, the impact, for instance, for Ukraine, the impact for the rest of the world and for the international monetary system. So that's where we come in. Uh, this is an election year, 2024, not just in the United States, but a lot of countries. Are you worried that that could lead uh, politically to a lot of domestic spending, increased domestic spending in countries, and this could destabilize the global economy? If you look at uh, what's happened in the past, there is a correlation between increased spending during uh, election years. And so, you know, that would be a reasonable conjecture to have. Uh, you know, one of the points we have been making is we are now in a world where debt levels are very high. Uh, and we have many countries that whose fiscal deficits uh, are too big. They're spending much more than what their revenues are bringing in. So it is our advice that this is actually now a time to consolidate on the fiscal front, to build up buffers, also because this is not going to be the last, you know, we're not done with shocks. We're going to see many more shocks going into the future. We're also seeing interest rates going up and interest rates likely will be higher than they were during that period right after the global financial crisis when everybody pushed interest rates down to rock bottom levels. You know, the interest rates at which governments are borrowing is going up. That will then crowd out necessary spending that they will have to do. So it is our advice that now is the time to engage in fiscal consolidation and to rebuild buffers. But of course, to do this in a sensible manner, which is not to do everything up front, but to smooth it over time. The economy, which we thought was both having uh uh, problems with inflation and might then lead to a recession with the high interest rates that are being used, seems in the United States and in other places too, to have had a what's called a soft landing. In other words, the economy has uh, done better than many economists thought. Is that true in the United States and around the world? And if so, what were the reasons for this soft landing? The global economy has been more resilient than many feared. Uh, and while we don't have a soft landing yet, our expectation is that we will see soft landings. Again, that is our baseline. And the reason we expect to see soft landings is one, that inflation has come down quite significantly in many parts of the world without needing uh, a, 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 you know, a, a big increase in unemployment rates or a big drop in activity. So without that, we have seen inflation coming down quite a lot. 
that gives us hope why you could end up with uh, a soft landing. Now, there are several reasons why maybe we end up here. Uh, what we saw were a lot of supply chain disruptions during the uh, pandemic and also the energy prices that went up during the war. Those have unbound and that has helped everybody in bring their inflation down. But we still have the last mile and I want to flag that is we do have the last mile in getting inflation back down to central bank targets. So we're not done. The approach of being cautious is the right one, which is what central banks are signaling to be data dependent and to see, you know, what happens to inflation with every reading. Now, I think we should be uh, careful not to extrapolate from one data point and either have euphoria or to have panic from it. Uh, our expectation is that inflation will continue to decline. It will be bumpy. But we expect that it will continue to decline, again, as long as policies are maintained at the right level. So in other words, we shouldn't rush into rate cuts right now. Our advice is to be cautious about it. And, uh, uh, you know, our uh, best guess estimate at this point, given the data that we have seen, is that rate cuts are more likely towards the second half of this year, both in the U.S. and in the euro area. But again, one should update this depending upon what the data points to. Gita Gopinath, thank you very much. Thank you, Walter. An instructive conversation as Russia's invasion continues to pose a threat to the global economy. And join us tomorrow for my report from Bucha. It is the upwardly mobile suburb of Kyiv, infamous for one of the most brutal massacres by Russian forces two years ago. It marked a turning point in the war, hardening Ukraine's resolve to defeat Russia and delivering a vital wake-up call to the world. We see how Bucha is recovering two years later. And that's it for now. If you ever miss our show, you can find the latest episode shortly after it airs on our podcast. And remember, you can always catch us online on our website and all over social media. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.